Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Cincinnati Public Radio, the show that puts you, the listener, in the driver's seat because you are the content. The phone lines are open to be a part of the program. It's a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. And give me a call, and we'll talk about your tech questions or business and tech questions. Linux advocate, above all else, small business owner, and now host of the only radio show centered around you, the listener. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. My name is Noah Chalaya. So we are live here in Cincinnati, Ohio, at Cincinnati Public Radio, 90.9 WGUC, 91.7 WVXU. And a huge thank you to Rick, to Don, and the entire team here at Cincinnati Public Radio for giving us a home when we travel back from Southeast Linux Fest. Now, if you missed our show from the show floor, then you need to run, not walk to your computer and catch up because the reason the reason that events like self are so important to us here at the Ask Noah Show is that you guys can only want to hear my voice so much, and I can never present these projects as well as the people who live them can. So to that end, we go out, we find the actual movers and shakers in the community, we bring them on this program so that you can hear it right from the horse's mouth, so to speak. What does it mean to you guys when I say the word, or the words, freedom of speech? Certainly, there are those that talk about their freedom of speech on privately owned property, or privately owned entities, like Facebook and Reddit. But as it specifically relates to the Constitution, you, you have a protection of your freedom of speech from the government. Not necessarily every social media site that you visit. And I want to make that clear right off the bat because the simple fact is you don't always have a right to have a platform. Now with that out of the way, with that acknowledgement made clear, the very concept of freedom of speech can exist outside of constitutional protection. So is the concept of freedom of speech a good idea? I think most of you listening right now would say yes. Many people out there would say, and myself is included, that free speech doesn't necessarily remove you from the consequences of that speech. So the question we have to ask is, as it relates specifically to online groups, to mailing lists, to Telegram, etc., as it relates specifically to those online groups, what should be the consequence of free speech? Should a person lose their job? Should they be ridiculed at every turn online? I'm not claiming to know the answer to those questions. I'm just asking. But we do have to identify what the proper response to free speech that we disagree with is. And that I do have an answer for. And I'll go ahead and tell you. I think the answer to speech that we don't like is more free speech. Paul Jones is an internationally recognized expert on PHP. He is a fantastic speaker. And as I got to know him this weekend, he's an all-around great guy. Now, Paul gave a speech at Southeast Linux Fest, and I am telling you guys, I was freaking spellbound the entire time. I was so riveted to what he was saying, I immediately got up, ran out of the room, ran over to my broadcast booth, and just started grabbing armfuls of production equipment. 
and came back into the room and I started micing the room so I could share this stuff with you today because what we're going to talk about this hour is controversial. There was a part of me that even questioned if I was going to bring this onto the program. But the more I thought about it, the more I came to two conclusions. The first conclusion, the listeners of the Ask Noah show are some of the most logical, rational, intellectual people out there. By the very nature of our chosen profession, we have to be methodical. We have to remove emotion from the equation because computers don't respond differently just because we're frustrated, just because we're upset with them. And the second conclusion I reached was that even if this does upset some of you, Paul Jones is 100% right about this stuff. So uh, we are live remote in um, Cincinnati, Ohio. So back at the studio, go ahead and queue up cut four for me. What I'm going to play for you is Paul is going to talk about presenting about something that presents a real credible threat to the communities that we all love and care about. And if you have the courage to hang in there with me to the end, I think you're going to reach the same conclusion that I have, that Paul is 100% right about this stuff. And if we care about these communities, if we care about these projects that they represent, then we have to take a stand. We have to start addressing this problem before it gets any worse, before it gets any further out of hand. After Paul's presentation, I asked him to stop by our booth and we chatted with him. And now as you listen to this audio, if I'm wrong here, if there's something I'm missing, tell me. I just got done introing the segment or the, with the, the show talking about how much I value free speech. Tell me. Speak up. I'd love to have a discussion about it as long as you keep it civil minded. Our phone lines are open. one 450 NOAA. It's 1-855-450-6624. All right. Got up. Here's... Here is Paul Jones. Go ahead and play cut four. There is a push in a lot of online communities to introduce uh, something called the Contributor Covenant for online virtual spaces. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is my opinion, and I think it's borne out both by the rules that are listed in the, in the covenant and by the actions of the people who apply it, that it is uh, a severe restriction of free speech in all venues, not just in project venues. And as such, I think it is something to be resisted early and often as strenuously as possible. Now, tell me a little bit about why you feel so strongly that this is detrimental to those communities. Essentially, the problem is this. In a Linux community, we talk about freedom in terms of free as in speech. And yet, this kind of code is antithetical to free speech. What it means is that if it gets adopted in your project, that you no longer have freedom of speech in other venues if you happen to disagree with people who have a social justice way of looking at the world. And the problem becomes, then, that your participation in the project becomes threatened if you speak out against a social justice point of view in any non-project forum. It ends up being used as leverage against you, whether you are just a maintainer of a project or, in some cases, the owner of the project. I think that is something that people who want a free and open society, not just in software, but in the, in, in the physical world as well, uh, that is something that is antithetical to the principles of a free and open society. Proponents of, uh, of, these, uh, of these kinds of codes of conduct would tell you that they ensure that equality is being protected and that um, it, it, is, it is making sure that minorities are perfect, protected. Is, is that not true? 
So uh, that is the stated purpose of these things. If you read the Contributor Covenant, for example, it says, we want to ensure a welcoming and inclusive community for everyone, regardless of their identity characteristics, uh, sex, gender, sexual identity, orientation, body size, you name it, skin color, you name it, it's there. What incidentally is not listed, though, is protection for different ideas, different politics, uh, different ways of looking at the world. In fact, those protections are, have been explicitly rejected by the maintainer of the contributor covenant. So ostensibly the idea is we want a safe and welcoming space, but it turns out that what we want is a safe and welcoming space for people we agree with. And if you don't agree with us on other policies, then we don't think there should be a place for you here. The upshot of all of it is that it starts out by sounding like we want a safe and welcoming space. But the practice of it is we want to have power over our political enemies and we're going to use your project membership as leverage over you to make sure that you don't oppose us in a political arena. Are the consequences of these uh, code of conducts, are they limited to just the project themselves? So that's sort of funny. The, The idea in the project is when you adopt the code of con- when you adopt the contributor covenant specifically what they say in the contributor covenant is if you don't abide by the contributor covenant when you are representing the project or representing the project's community then the leaders of the project have committed to essentially throwing you out of the project the problem becomes that when are you not representing the project when sure. are you not representing the community So what that means is you can be in the project space and be perfectly, strictly technical within the project space. But the moment you go out onto Twitter to say something that is not politically correct or not in line with a social justice way of looking at the world, and you're not talking about the project at all, they can say, well, you're representing the project. People know that you're part of the project. We need to kick you out. So the effect is to police your speech in venues that are not related to the project directly in any way. Does that uh, I, I understand that sometimes that even extends so far as to go after people's places of employment, even if they're employed at a place that has nothing to do with the project. That's correct. We, we see from time to time that uh, if you oppose, uh, and this is not strictly limited to the contributor covenant, this is a social justice way of working, uh, that if you publicly and loudly oppose uh, a social justice talking point, that uh, people will then go to your employer or your advertisers and say, you know, so-and-so is... They're saying kind of racist things. You know, they're sounding kind of bigoted. Is that really the kind of person you want to be associated with? And then your employer says, you know, it's not, I have no uh, interest in fighting this fight. It's just easier for me to fire you than it is to fight against these people. It's easier for the employer to dump you than it is to fight for you. So that's, you know, that's what happens. That seems like the very opposite of being understanding and inclusive I, I completely agree. There is uh, a doctrine called the Mott and Bailey Doctrine. Uh, you can look it up. It's M-O-T-T-E and Bailey. Uh, you can find it on Slate Star Codex if you, if you read that blog. The idea is this. In medieval times, there uh, was a thing called a Bailey, which is basically, basically a big open field. That's where you did all your work and all your social interaction. There was also a Mott. It's a tower. And what would happen is when the bailey was attacked, everyone would retreat to the tower so that they could rain down arrows and protect their space. And then when the attack the challenge was done, they could come back out into the bailey. That's pretty much happens in these kinds of interactions as well. Uh, the idea is that you put forth a bold and controversial statement or, uh, or, or do some bold and controversial action. 
And then when you are challenged on it, you back up and say, oh, no, 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 we're not doing this bold, controversial thing. We're just doing this uncontroversial thing that really everyone actually agrees with. And then, oh, yeah, you're right. Everyone actually agrees with it. And then when the challenge is ended, they go back out on the Bailey and start doing the bold, bold and controversial thing. In terms of this conversation, what that means is we want to use threats and intimidation against people who are our political enemies by trying to get them fired, trying to get them shoved out of the project, by smearing their name in public. And when they are challenged on this behavior, they say, oh, no, they go back up to the mod. They say, no, 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 we're just trying to make sure that there's a safe space for everybody, that everyone is welcome and inclusive. This person over here is, is not being welcome and inclusive. We're just making sure that everything is okay for everybody else. And the response is, oh, you're right, you know, we want to be welcoming and inclusive too. We want to be nice. Okay, we get it. And then they go back to trying getting people fired. So this stems out of people being actually good people to begin with, and they become subjective to this. Correct. This is a form of using your own goodwill against you. There is no good person in this society that wants to see harassment, that wants to enable bad things happening to other people. Nobody wants that. And so when you're told, you know, we're just trying to be nice, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm in favor of nice. But then what follows on is not nice. What follows on is... It is itself oppressive behavior. Yeah. Persecution, intolerance, exactly. Talk a little bit about the number of women in technology, because I know that's a hot-button issue. And there's a lot of people that would say, well, there's not enough women in technology. Is that is that true? Is there, do we have not enough women in technology? So this is, this is actually a point that I make in, in the talk. Uh, when a code of conduct or the contributor covenant is introduced, one of the things that, that the people who are proponents of it will say is, well, we, we're just being logical. We're just trying to make sure we're more welcoming and inclusive. Uh, we're just being logical about this, and so we need a code of, code of conduct. The problem with, with that is that saying we're just being logical, well, logic has a form. Logic starts out from true premises, one or more true premises, proceeds through a series of syllogisms to reach a conclusion. The people that are proponents of the code of conduct in this case, the contributor covenant, they presume the premises, they make no syllogisms whatsoever, and they go directly to the conclusion. And one of the things they say is, like you said, women are underrepresented in technology. It's just logical we should have a code of conduct. This is, a, this is going to be a very controversial thing for me to say, so I would just stick with me on this while I work through it. To say that women are underrepresented in technology is a political statement. It is not a logically accurate premise. It's a political statement for, two, for at least two reasons. One of those reasons is that you're presuming that there is, in fact, a correct level of representation. And second of all, that you actually know what it is. So it's not a, in terms of logic, it's not a true premise. A true premise would be there are fewer women in technology than men. Right. That's a true premise to start from. Yeah, who you can, decides what is enough? Who, exactly, that's exactly right. Now, then you can, if you're going to do logic, that's the premise that you need to start from. That's not where they start from. Working through that to get to, and then we need to have a contributor covenant right. as the end conclusion is much more difficult to work, much more difficult to work through. So they don't do that. They just presume the premise and go directly to the conclusion. If we have people out there, because right now there is somebody that's listening to the show and they are struggling with this. Maybe they're maybe they're not. Maybe they don't wear it on their sleeve because because of persecution, because their job may be in jeopardy. And they're struggling with this, and they're saying, man, I am resonating with what Paul is saying. What, speak to that listener. What can that guy do? What can that woman do to, to try to correct this community? Or maybe you can't correct it once this is in place, but what can you do to avoid your community falling into this, you know, this trap? So the, the first thing you need to know is that you're not alone, that there are a lot of other people who say this. But don't feel safe saying it because no one else is saying it. Right. This is one of the, the great things that uh, 
the social justice side of this uh, equation has going for it is that they have, uh, if you will, they feel like they possess the moral high ground, and so everyone feels afraid to say anything about it. But there's this thing called a preference cascade. A preference cascade works like this. If you're at a party and you're ready to go, but no one else seems like they're ready to go, you don't want to say you're ready to go yet. But the moment that first person grabs their coat and says, I'm ready to go, suddenly everyone is grabbing their coat and suddenly the party is over. That's what needs to happen here. This is extremely difficult to do because it feels very dangerous to say, you know what, maybe we should not have the contributed covenant here. I think this might actually be against freedom of speech. You know what, I like freedom of speech. We might actually be alienating the people where we set out to not alienate people to be part of our project. Correct. That's exactly right. Um, So I hate to say it this way. The solution is bravery. The solution is courage. It's extremely difficult to do. Uh, I'm not saying that you're a bad person if you're not doing it. In fact, that's the opposite of what I'm saying. I'm saying it's very normal to want to hunker down and just kind of get along with the crowd. But if you do that long enough, they're going to come for you too. Being quiet is no safety. You need to speak up early when you see this happening and at least make your desires known. Uh, And I'm not saying that's not without its own negatives. People are not going to like you for it. But if you speak up, other people are going to speak up too. Someone's got to be first. Well, I can't tell you how much we appreciate uh, you at the Ask Noah Show coming, taking the time to not only give this presentation. I understand you've done it once or twice before. Um, you know, you've done a fantastic job. And, you know, I said this to you in the room, and, and, and I'll repeat it here on air, is you possess the ability to take these very complex situations and remove emotion from them, apply just logic, step back, and just we all just kind of take a deep breath and go, okay, We all want the same thing. We want an inclusive environment. Sometimes having an inclusive environment means that we are going to have to include people that we fundamentally disagree with. And that's okay. We can all be friends. We can all contribute to the same source code because we all want this project to succeed. We just have to accept that we are a wide range of human beings with a wide range of beliefs and a wide range of things that make us individuals. And we need to accept those things even when we disagree with them. And really... The true mark of somebody who is, you know, is is truly understanding and acceptance, or accepting rather, that is the person that looks at the thing that they despise the most and reaches out their first hand and says, hey, you know what? I don't care. That's fine. Welcome to the project. I'm happy to have you. So thank you very much, Paul. If people want to learn more about this, where can they go? Uh, so you can go to my blog, paul-m-jones.com, uh, and you can search for Code of Conduct or, uh, or any related topic, and you should see a couple of uh, a couple of posts come up. These slides are also online at paulmjones.com slash talks, and you can see not only the slides but a, uh, a very poorly recorded version uh, on YouTube uh, as well. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the Ask Noah Show. We hope to stay in contact, and we'll get you back in the program real soon. Thanks a lot for having me. Hopefully I haven't lost a whole lot of you, and I do want to reinforce that we all want the same things here. We all want to be inclusive. We all want to be welcoming to people. And while I agree with every single word that just came out of Paul's mouth this weekend, the interesting irony is that I didn't have to. I didn't have to agree with Paul for us to work together. Paul wants technology to succeed, and I want technology to succeed. Paul and I both agree that we are willing to be inclusive and accepting of anyone as long as they are trying to better the project and its goals. Now, Those are the only two things that Paul and I need to agree on. And as long as he can put his differences of opinion aside from me and I do that for him, that is true unity. That is true acceptance. That is true understanding. 
All right, phone lines one eight five five four five zero. No, that's one eight five five four five zero six six two four. Again, we're live here in Cincinnati, Ohio, taking your questions, your calls, talking about code of conduct, inclusivity, and accepting of all projects. Now, early in the hour, I told you that I was able to get audio from Paul's presentation, and I have to warn you. When I heard what Paul was saying, I was running around with the chicken like my head cut off trying to get microphone gear into place. And he's in the middle of this presentation, so you can kind of picture this, right? I'm, I'm trying to mic him without interrupting the presentation. But suffice to say, the audio is a little rough, but it is tolerable. Now, Paul gave a really interesting example of where the rubber meets the road. And I think if you're not quite sure where you fall down on this, I think this is really going to help because it's, it's going to give you a practical example. Let's play cut one. But in addition to that, about the same time, Coraline had tried to introduce it into Ruby. She went essentially to the Ruby list of issues and said, you need to have a contributor covenant. Long discussion ensued, during part of which uh, it was suggested that perhaps Matts, the inventor of Ruby, the one who's the leader of the community, perhaps he should be removed because he doesn't really like the contributor covenant. Maybe we should get rid of him. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here with this. So that's their answer. Let's kick him out. That's how we get to tolerance and acceptance. Now, I know what many of you are thinking. You're thinking, what do we do about this issue? I mean, practically speaking, because and I had these same questions, too, as he was giving these as he was giving this presentation, as I was listening to him, I started to think, what practically can we do about these things? Um, and Paul takes a turn to the dark side and he starts talking about what you have to be prepared to expect if you're going to fight this head on. Let's play cut two. First thing is this. The moment a contributor covenant is introduced as a possibility, that day, that hour, if you can, is to say, no, I don't want this. I think this is a bad idea. The thing that contributor covenant proposers want above all is for the covenant to get in very quickly with as little discussion as possible so that it looks to the outside world that there's this great sweeping thing that just went on through voluntarily and no one objected. Why are you objecting now after it's all been done? So you need to speak up right away. Make your objections heard immediately. So speaking up right away, that is his, that is the first step that Paul recommends. He says, you have to say something so that it goes on record. And that's not always an easy thing to do. Um, so what is going to happen when you speak up? What is going to be the reaction? Play cut three. These are the kinds of attacks that are going to be put against you, and these are some defenses you can use when you're resisting the introduction of the Code of Conduct. The first thing that always happens, we see this on Twitter all the time, is people are going to say, wow, just, wow, I can't even, I literally just can't even. It's, it's, it's 2017. It's the current year. And I can't believe that we still have to have this conversation about welcoming and inclusivity. These are not arguments. You don't even need to respond to these directly if you don't want to. These are indications of a mental or emotional state. So if you feel you need to respond to these, just say, look, your incredulity is not an argument in your favor. It doesn't say anything for or against the code of conduct. Now, what I love about that, aside from the point that Paul is actually making, notice how he stays analytical. Notice how he takes everything with pure rationale and a logical approach. At no time does he reference his own feelings. At no time does he reference his own personal, personally held beliefs. There are no arbitrary assertions. Everything is backed up with, with reason and fact. And that's what I really think is going to appeal to 
the technical community, I feel like it's very easy for us that work in the technical community to wrap our heads around this stuff. Now, part of any healthy discussion is to have dissenting points of view. And Paul goes on to explain how in some circumstances, if the person disagrees with the code of conduct, even if said person should be a victim and protected by said code of conduct, that same person gets dismissed. Let's play cut five. Skepticism about anyone else's story about having been, a, been subjected to sexism, bigotry, whatever. If you're skeptical of their story, or if you ask them questions about it, if you don't believe them just out of hand, you're part of the problem. You just need to believe them. The act of arguing against the theory of anti-bigotry, anti-sexism, whatever, demonstrate that, again, you're part of the problem. Either you don't understand what other people are talking about, or you yourself are guilty of it and can be dismissed as complicit. If you are part of the designated oppressed class, and you say, as a member of the oppressed class, when someone comes along and says, we need to cut a counter, you're like, you know, I've never actually had that particular problem in this community. Everything's kind of fine. They'll say, no, 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 you have just internalized the oppression against you. We can dismiss your arguments. Now, the problem with doing that is that we literally shut down the conversation. And some of you are asking, well, no, how can you play this Paul guy don't you both know that we need a code of conduct of people or people get walked all over. They get pushed out of projects. And Paul addresses this. And he the, the way he addresses it is he asks, again, a logical question. If we are to say that these codes of conducts protect certain groups of people from getting pushed out of projects, then what project has ever had an issue that a code of conduct fixed? Let's play cut six. Well, okay. We know that nothing's actually happened here that we would need a code of conduct for, but we want to make sure that if something happens, we have something in place to deal with it, or we want to have it in place to prevent any possible infractions that might occur in case, you know, just, just in case. So the whole the idea is for it to be prevented. So when you're presented with this argument, what you say is, okay, I get that. That sounds nice. What kind of incidents have happened in other places or here that this would prevent? What has actually happened in some virtual space that you know of where this would have either prevented it or having it in place would have made it easier to deal with? Then they're going to say, well, a conference acts this, that. No, no. We're not talking about conferences. We're not talking about physical meeting spaces. We're talking about online, virtual, networked spaces. Where has a code of conduct, where has an incident occurred that a code of conduct would have helped with? They're going to have a hard time coming up with answers. One of the things you'll hear from this is, well, I can't really talk about it because I need to maintain the privacy of the people involved. That's not an argument. It's certainly not a good argument for policing my speech on Twitter when I'm not talking about the project. Now, notice how he talks about the goals and the scope of the project. Notice how that is always the focus of it because that's the area of commonality between these people. Not the areas of disagreement. My, my, my personal political beliefs are not relevant to this project. Because the reality is, if we didn't agree on areas of commonality for the end goals of the project to begin with, we wouldn't even be having this discussion. And I think it's important to realize that here. I think it's important to realize that the reason that we're talking about this is because some of us have reached an impasse where we don't, where we're being, we're being, being prevented uh, from being able to contribute to a project when we want to be part of the project because of a belief held completely outside the scope of the project. And we need to decide how we are going to do that moving forward. And finally, and here is where I think Paul 
really brings it home. In fact, it was this part of the presentation that ultimately convinced me I needed to bring this here on the air tonight to you on the Ask Noah program. Paul is about to talk about the kind of attitude, responsibility that you have to, uh, that you have to use um, to speak about these kinds of things. And if you're going to take these people head on, then you have to be willing for uh, you have to be willing to take the high road, or else you wind up being just a hypocrite. Let's have cut eight. Well, you're sitting here arguing against the code of conduct. You you shouldn't just you can't just be against things. You need to be more constructive. Help us make it better. It is not your responsibility. Cut eight. Can we get cut eight? When you are dealing with this, when you are actively resisting this stuff, you've got to fight a clean, as clean a way as you can. Fighting cleanly is not going to make your opponents feel better about you. But it is going to look better for you to outside observers. Again, these are not people who actually, the people who want the code of conduct don't actually care about any particular set of rules. What they want is political, what they want is power over their political enemies. The code of conduct is a way of leveraging power against you. Even so, you should still follow your venue rules as closely as possible. If you're on a mailing list, follow the mailing list rules. If you're on Twitter, follow the Twitter rules, GitHub rules, whatever. You need to have patience. I am not a patient man. This is very difficult for me. You're going to get a response to you saying, we don't need a code, we shouldn't have a code of conduct. Someone's going to respond to you saying, oh, you're a terrible bigot. You're going to want to right, right away. You know, it's, and then someone else is going to say it. Someone else. And in 30 minutes, you have sent 20 replies. This doesn't look good. You look nuts. So what you need to do is have some patience. Let the replies roll in for a couple of hours, maybe a day. Collect them all up and reply to all of them in one email, or in as few emails as possible. When you respond, critique the ideas that are being presented and not the people that are presenting them. That's great stuff. Critique the ideas, not the people presenting them. Because at the end of the day, if we are not talking about the goals of a project and we're talking about the human aspect all people are valuable. All people deserve respect for their life, for their lifestyle choices, for the race, for the religion, for their skin color. You don't have to agree with them, but you do have you don't have to like them, but you have to show them respect. And that, that that's what we all want. So huge thanks to Paul Jones for having the courage to speak up on this very important issue, for taking the time to come on the Ask Noah show and share his ideas with us. If you want to hear more about what Paul is saying about this kinds of things, check out his website, paul-m-jones.com. And stay tuned to the Ask Noah show because I will give you a little hint. Paul and I are working on something very cool. So stay tuned to the Ask Noah program to find out what that is. All right, phone lines, one 855 450 Give me a call, and we will talk. Dale is calling from Virginia. Hi, Dale. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi. Uh, can you hear me all right? I can. How can we help today? Okay. So, um, <clears throat> I have a Dale PowerEdge R710 running as a Arch Linux hypervisor uh, using uh, KVM and, and Kimu, I believe it's pronounced. Um, now, I have a Windows 10 machine as a guest, and what I'm trying to do is nested virtualization. I want to run a Hyper-V VM within a VM. Now, I've already enabled the KVM option in the kernel, all that, done, and... What this is, what the original VM is for, is for Steam. So what I've done is I've thrown a video card in the server, and I have gaming in a VM through PCI Passbook. 
So when I try to enable Hyper-V on the same guest, it does not work if the video card is passed through. For some reason, if I have the video card passed through and try to enable Hyper-V, the network doesn't come up and I can no longer connect. Now, if I go back in, remove the video card, everything comes up and works like fine. Um, And basically what I'm asking is how can I isolate whether this is a Linux or a Windows issue yeah. <laughs> well, so I tell you what. So here's the first thing I would do. It's funny. It's interesting. You and I uh, troubleshoot very similarly because as you're explaining this problem to me, I am doing the same kind of troubleshooting steps that you are. I'm saying, how can we isolate this from this hardware particular issue down to is it an operating system issue? And my, the way I would do that, my suggestion to you to figure that out would be, have you tried virtualizing another Linux hypervisor inside of your whatever parent hypervisor? No, but I like where you're going with this. <laughs> so I have well, I have actually saying... I have actually tried sorry, using I've actually tried using um uh, libvirtd as a parent hypervisor and then I have made another hypervisor inside of the original hypervisor and partly the, the first time I did that was to test for a client but lately what I have been doing that for um is actually I wanted to see if I could Take one of DigitalOcean's super beefy droplets that's already a virtualized machine and make it into my virtual host. Turns out you can do that. So that would be my first step. I would try that. I would try putting uh, the, the I would try putting a Linux hypervisor inside of a Linux hypervisor and see if if that works well. If that works well, and then here's where we go from there. If that works well, then we know it's a problem with Windows specifically. We can start troubleshooting that. If that doesn't work, then what I would do is I would start looking into. Um, the I would try something like Unraid or something that is specifically designed uh, to have uh, to facilitate easy PCI pass through because I was one of the early adopters of PCI pass through and let me tell you I I tried it on on everything and there were like th- at, at the, you know at the time I got started maybe it's different now at the time I got started there were like three motherboards that would they all would advertise it but there were like three motherboards that would function properly and the rest of them just wouldn't work so it is entirely possible it could be a hardware problem. Okay, I'll definitely give it a little bit more research and go from that angle. But the Linux hypervisor within another hypervisor, that's a new one. Um, That's awesome, man. I I really appreciate your help. Hey, I really appreciate you calling in, and thanks so much for being part of the Ask Noah show. We appreciate uh, your support, and thank you very much for the call. Blue is calling. Uh, Hi, Blue. Welcome to the Ask Noah show. Hey, Noah. Uh, Whole show today. Blue, can I ask you to? Can I? Sorry to interrupt. Can I ask you to speak directly into your phone? It's a little hard to hear you. Yeah, I'm trying to get the right thing. I can't get the phone to work with the car. Uh huh. Maybe just uh, take it off a of speed. Maybe take it off the phone. Just uh, just talk right into the phone. Maybe don't use the uh, headset or Bluetooth or whatever it is you're using. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, okay, uh, let's try now. How can we help? My question is, uh, basically the whole net neutrality thing that's going on, uh, mm-hmm. I know it's free speech on how we use this stuff like Crunchyroll and Netflix, but if they, the big companies have their way, would that be infringing of our free speech? And uh, would it be legal 
having them. Talk yeah, I, I, I follow what you, I follow what you're asking. So, um, you know, basically, I guess here's here's kind of the way you look at that. It, when when it comes to the FCC, the FCC is a government organization, right? So, the FCC, the the government, the the Constitution does protect you as an individual from oppression from the government from restricting your free speech. So, you know, when, when we're talking about the FCC, then yes, absolutely. We would want to make sure that we're not suppressing free speech. Here's the, here's the issue though. And this is the issue that I have. And someday maybe we'll dig into this a little deeper on the Ask Noah show. But the issue that, uh, that, that arises is that the government doesn't provide the internet, right? Private entities provide the internet. The FCC is a government, is an arm of the government that then is trying to govern and regulate those yeah, individual privately owned entities. And so where does freedom of speech begin and end? And where does these private companies, you know, rights begin and end? So it's a very complicated, it's a very complicated topic. And it's one that I, I've, I have wanted to dig into for quite some time. But, you know, the thing is, it is a, it's one of those things that I haven't exactly figured out how to present clearly or, and, and, and work out my own thoughts. So as soon as I do that, you know, maybe we'll, maybe we'll dig into that sometime. All right. Switching gears again, one eight five five four five zero noah That's eight five five four five zero six six two four. If you want to give us a call the last few weeks, I've been on this kick about security on Linux and I've been going through YouTube comments and I was doing that right before the show. And a listener asked me why we hadn't talked about this story. And well, so here's the thing. I am grateful I want to say this first before we get into any of the rest of this. I am grateful that there are people out there that would even ask this question, that would say something and then question something that we say on the show. Because if you think about it, questioning what I say here on the air does two things. I either have to come back the next week and I have to defend what I said or I have to concede. And either way, the audience as a whole gets a better show because people like this listener took the time to spoke up. So I'll just in the in the in the spirit of welcoming free speech. Thank you very much for making the comment. That said. What I said was Linux was a better platform for security, and I'm 100% right about this. I have never said, and I will never say, that Linux is immune from all threats. That would be ridiculous. Linux simply has a less of an attack vector than other operating systems. And yes, undeniably, a part of that is because of the amount of users they have. There's less people knocking on the door of desktop Linux. That said... That doesn't apply to the server, which is what this next article is talking about, because the vast majority of servers are Linux. Now, there's, there, are, there are undeniable technical advantages from a security standpoint, and you just don't have that with other operating systems. And that's what I keep. That's the drum I keep beating. All right. Bleepingcomputer.com headline, Linux servers hijacked to mine cryptocurrency via SambaCry vulnerability. An unknown threat actor is using a vulnerability in Samba installations to take over Linux machines and use them as pawns in a vast cryptocurrency mining operation. According to public data, their actions stated give days after the Samba team announced the patch CVE 2017-7494, a vulnerability in all Samba versions released in 2010, after 2010, excuse me. At a technical level, the successful Samba Cry exploit would allow an attacker with an open pipe on Samba servers upload malicious code and then have it executed. Depending on the attacker's skill level, one could easily achieve a, and I quote, full server takeover. See, no, there you have it. Uh, that's a full server takeover. You, you just said it. See, the, the Linux is insecure. I'll say this again. Yes, there are security 
vulnerabilities in Linux. Yes, there are insecurities in Linux. If you're looking for an impenetrable operating system, you better look elsewhere. I think my friends at uh, Smith Corona make a, a really great typewriter, and you can put that in a type your document out and put it in a Liberty Safe or something, and that probably more be more impenetrable than any given operating system. Projects are going to look through their code, and they are going to try to find vulnerabilities. When they find those vulnerabilities, they have a requirement, they have a duty to patch them. So if someone takes advantage of the fact that a vulnerability existed and exploits it after a fix has been released, that is not... That is not a that is not Linux, you know, failing us. We don't have a failure of the security model of Linux so much as we have a failure of the proper application of updates and patches. Again, we're taking your calls this hour, one eight five five four five zero NOAA. That's one eight five five four five zero six six two four. So we wrapped up Southeast Linux Fest. Now I want to ask you guys where you're looking at going, um, you know, with the show, because I have a, a lot of interviews that I have collected. And I was actually, I was talking to Chris about this earlier. A lot of them are not, uh, I, I, I took the interviews that I thought would fit best with these, with the, the, the current topic and the current trends and stuff like that. And if you want other interviews, I have them. I haven't just decided what to do with them. There's a couple of options. We could upload them to our YouTube channel we could play them for you right here on the air. So if there's a project that you've always that you've thought I've always wanted to get that particular project on the air, I've always wanted to hear what they have to say, let us know and you can do that at the Ask Noah Show dashboard. That's asknoahshow.com. And there's there was some confusion about that last week. That is that is basically the starting point. It does branch you off. It has links to to a bunch of other things. So there's nothing at that site specifically that you can get to, it just links you to all of the various resources. So you only have to go to one place because they're spread up all over the internet. All right. one eight five five four five zero. No, that's eight five five four five zero six six two four. I had a, I had a, uh, so the week before last, we talked about IPA on Saturday. And again, if you didn't get a chance to check out this episode, you should. We did an interview with the free IPA folks and they explained exactly what free IPA could do even blew me away because I was using it to a certain extent and found out that it was actually capable of a lot more than that. And um, I got some listener feedback in and I wanted to cover that. And this, this comes from Adam. Adam writes and he says, hello, I work in a hybrid environment at the university and there is no way I'm going to be able to convince the powers that be to switch to free IPA. So I have looked at SSSD and RealmD to connect my department's machines to an active directory. It works perfectly on CentOS, which is 90% of our Linux. However, over the past few years, we have had more and more people want Ubuntu, and I'm completely unable to get an SSSD and RealmD to work right on 1604. Have you had any luck making this work on 1604? We're making it work with Kerberos slash NIS, but I would like to leverage the benefits of SSSD and not have to main two identity servers. Well, Adam... The interview that we did, and I'm, I'm not 100% sure, this came in at 7.44 this morning. So I'm not 100% sure if this, if when you sent this email, if you were referring to last week's episode, or if you had a chance to catch Saturday's episode. But the reason I wanted to address this on the air is because, yes, you, we actually talked about this. It just, I think it got buried in the interview. And with the interview with Stryker, the, one of the guys who works on the free IPA team, he was actually talking about how they have difficulties with their 
with the login manager working correctly on most distros. And so he uses KDE on Ubuntu and he had issues. And so what he did was he switched to um, a different logon manager and used it with KDE and that seemed to solve his problem. So I would, I would give that a shot and see if that works for you. Again, one eight five five four five zero noah That's one eight five five four five zero six six two four. You know, one of the things that I thought was most interesting from self was desktop Linux. And a lot of the, if you'll notice, a lot of the interviews that we played on Saturday's episode, um, as well as some of the ones that we're going to have coming up in the next couple of episodes, you'll notice have a very strong emphasis on desktop Linux. And the reason for that is because it seems like when I talk to certain, there's like, there, there are like these two different worlds that exist. The first world is the world in which every developer has given up on desktop Linux and they've all gone to MacBooks. Uh, and then there's there's like this other tiny little world where people have gone to Windows 10 and they're using Bash. And I don't know what world that is, but it apparently exists. Um, and then there's this other world of the people like I meet at Southeast Linux Fest where you're, you legitimately have a difficult time finding anyone that has a MacBook. You know, it's not hard to find it. It's not hard to find at, uh, at the bigger conferences, but you know, it's almost impossible to find here. So... What as we as as I kind of went through that and I was I was talking to all of these people and I'm looking at company after company after company saying that we are using Linux on the desktop. And then I got a chance to talk to Steve and Steve was saying, yeah, not only do we use Linux on the desktop at Red Hat and that's just kind of expected because we're Red Hat and that's what we do. But Steve goes on location to customers of Red Hat and he said those customers he's seeing an increase in Linux on the desktop. So. All of that to say, I really think it's a matter of which narrative that you want to buy into or which world you want to which world you want to be a part of. I think there's definitely a crowd of people that have given up on desktop Linux and have moved on. And I think that there those that crowd is not a hard crowd to find, and I think that there's nothing wrong with being a part of that crowd if that's what you choose to do. But I also I have if nothing else, what I really walked away with this weekend, it was very it was a very enlightening, encouraging thing to, to realization to have it was that that is one world and those are that is one place. But there are a, there are there's an entirely separate world, this entirely separate place of people that are making their money and a lot of it working only with desktop Linux, staying within the confines and a company like Red Hat is not only supporting desktop Linux, they invent special tools for groups of people that spring up and say, we have a problem with, uh, you know, using Java. We can't use Java. And they say, okay, well, here are all the things that you would have to do at Red Hat to get your job done with Java. So we are going to custom write a thing to make sure that you don't have to use Java. And I, I think that was Java that he used as an example. But the fact that Red Hat is willing to do that, to not make people give up their beliefs to continue to work for the company is absolutely fantastic. And it was, it was a really encouraging thing to walk away with. All right, we can't end a we we can't uh, do an Ask Noah show without our favorite caller, Sweet Lou from Pennsylvania. Hi, Sweet Lou. Welcome to the Ask Noah show. Hey, how's it going, Noah? How you doing tonight? Pretty good. I am doing all right. Hey, Sweet Lou, I owe you an apology. You have been on oh my. If, I, if I'm am I right in saying you've been on every Ask Noah since episode one? Is that right? Except the last one. Uh, just about. 
just about. So I, 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 owe, you an, I owe you an I owe you an apology because last week uh, we I ran we I, I was we had so many calls towards the end of the hour that we ran up. I was bumping up right against my top of the hour music, and so I uh, I ended up having yeah. to having to wrap up. But welcome to the Ask Noah Show, Sweet Lou. How can we help today? Oh, I was just wondering, since uh, I was able to get a brand new personal best time of 24 minutes and 43 seconds at the Rough Run 5K on Saturday, I was just wondering, what was the fastest uh, Linux distribution you were ever able to get booted up onto any machine? The fastest Linux distribution I've ever seen was uh, CentOS. Um, basically, what it was, was I had I got a call... Uh, from uh, we were working with a uh, with one of the professors from the local university, and uh, he's a good friend of mine. And he was friends with a professor that was doing uh, chemical engineering. And the professor called and uh, and said, "Do you know anyone that works on Linux? Because we have this new system that we'd like to implement, and I don't know how to get it running." So I get the call, and he says, "Yeah, you know, would you go work with this guy and see if you can get a software running?" I said, "Sure, not a problem." So we went over to the University of North Dakota, and went into the, you know, the chemical engineering department and they had basically what they were trying to do was they were trying to get this software that would run on this server and then the students could submit their chemical calculations with laptops or Chromebooks or whatever and would submit it up to the server and then the server would do all of this number crunching and then it would spit back just a graph and all of the results. And it was a, a, it was a really great because prior to that, what they had was, my understanding was they had these workstations and they had these, you know, these big, huge, great workstations that these students would have to sit down and use because that was the only machine powerful enough to make these number calculations. So I get to the I get to the university, and the first thing they said was, "Well, what are we going to use for a server?" And I start contacting the software vendor, and I said, "You know, there's not a lot of places that make software that does that do chemical calculations. So tell me, you know, what kind of things is required to you know to make this work?" And they start listing out these requirements, like you know, uh, 256 gigs of RAM or 120 gigs of RAM, whatever, and you know, like uh, you know, 60 terabytes of storage, and you know, four Xeon processors, and it's like, I'm like, holy Hannah! So I start looking. We're Dell partner. And uh, contact my Dell rep and, you know, we start looking through it and, okay, it's going to be X amount of dollars, you know, this, that, and the other. And the university on their own had gone out and gotten a quote from, I think it's uh, Think Server or something like that. Think uh, Think Center, maybe? Think, think something. I don't know. It reminded me of uh, of the old IBM servers, but it, it's a separate company. Anyway, they ended up getting this quote for, you know, $26,000, $27,000 and they get this, uh, this server in. And we start loading um, the operating system on it. And I tell you what, man, that thing booted instantly. And it was the first time because they, so the, the original software that they had ran on RHEL 5. And the newer software that they, that they, that they got ran on RHEL 7. So when you first got the software, we were trying to do, use it on RHEL 5, but it was one, we had some hardware, you know, uh, compatibility issues with using an operating system that old. But the second thing that we ran into a problem was all of the client side devices, you know, for the web server that was, you know, going to accept all this stuff. There are all sorts of weird incompatibility things because the, 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 you know, the operating system was, was so old. So we, we got a new system that are, that we upgraded to, to CentOS seven installed CentOS seven. Um, and that was the first time I did two things. That was the first time I ever took a CentOS box and transitioned it into a rel box. And I'm, just admitted that on air. I'm sure Red Hat's going to be thrilled about that. And that was the first time I ever did the, – the second thing that I did for the first time was I put a production machine – or a machine into production with System D. 
And once you see what happens with System D and UEFI and a, and a, and a really good SSD, it ends the discussion of if we needed to move to a different init system or not, because it is so much faster. It is it, it is incredible. And I bet you I bet you that thing booted in three. I don't know, maybe three or five seconds. So anyway, that's a really long winded way of saying that that was the fastest server that I ever uh, that I ever booted. Hey, guys, we need your help to support the show. Um, we are looking for more community involvement. Uh, there is the Ask Noah Telegram group. I am in that myself. I sit there and chat with people every now and again. In fact, I have it open right now. Uh, that is telegram.asknoahshow.com. You can visit that URL and it will open up Telegram. If you haven't heard of Telegram, Telegram is basically um, kind of like you know, the old MSN Messenger, if you will. It's a messaging service, but it runs on everything. It runs on iOS. It runs on Android, Mac, Windows, Linux, you name it. They even have a a web uh, a thing that 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 uses it um and it's not so much because i every time i mention the the ask no telegram group somebody always asks me well why don't you use wire well why don't you use signal i'm on all of those services i have them all um but the reason that i have stuck with telegram and again this was kind of exemplified itself was because everyone in the technical community everyone in the linux community has centered around telegram and so it just makes it makes a lot of sense. And you you notice that because like so, you know, when Wimpy landed in Linux Fest Northwest and I can just, you know, telegram him, say, you know, I, I can pick you up. And then when he starts saying, oh, you should talk to so and so he's the head of this project or he works on that or he does whatever. It, it's just it's a it it's easy to just drop that username in and then start talking to that person. I don't have to coordinate through other some other form of communication and then say, well, I need you to set up this or I need you to set up that or sign up. When that happens on Signal or Wire, I'll be all there. And the truth is, I have used all three of them, and I don't find any technically. I don't find anything technically superior about Telegram. I don't think the usability is any better. I don't think the. I don't. You know, there's you know more sticker packs if that's anything to you. But I, I don't really care about any of that. What I care about is the masses, at least for the crowds that I'm in, are on Telegram. So for the time being, that's that's where I'm hanging out. Um, but we have an official Telegram channel, telegram.asknoshow.com. And those guys go nonstop. In fact, from the time, from just from the time that I said I'm in there now till the time that I, I just clicked on the window, we've gotten 21 messages. So you definitely want to probably mute the group, but it's a great place to hang out. And I try to answer some questions in there uh, if I can. Otherwise, you can send them into asknoah at jupiterbroadcasting.com. That's our email address. Um, and I had some people... Like I said last week, that had some trouble with the with the dashboard, kind of confused of what it was. So I just wanted to set aside just a couple of moments to say, you know, it is a canonical place to start from, but there are no resources on the Ask Noah Show dashboard itself. It just simply directs you to those other places. We have a couple new shows that have come out on Jupiter Broadcasting, and I wanted to take a moment to talk some of the, about some of those. So we used to, Chris and I used to do the Linux Action Show every week. When that ended, we split off into a couple of different shows. The first show uh, is, of course, the Ask Noah show. And that's the show we're on episode 12 and still going strong. So we thank you very much for your support. And I want to take a moment to thank everyone that came out to Southeast Linux Fest to watch us do the episode live. And I got to shake some some hands with some really cool people, people that traveled a really uh, long way to be there with us. And so we really appreciated your support. And a huge thank you also to, um, you know, Chris DeLuca and William and Ron uh, and Cody, all of these people that that uh, that came around with me, and you know, some I had brought my wife and my kids, and so there were people that were offering to 
let them let Sarah use their room to uh, to you know to for the kids to run around and you know they turned on cartoons and stuff and you know just everyone was really great. Um, but thank you very much for coming out and supporting us and we really appreciate it. We had some stickers for you. We're going to do better job of swag. That was the lesson I learned was a better job of swag. The second show that we're doing on Jupiter Broadcasting is User Air, and that's a show hosted by Chris and uh, the gentleman that edits this show, the the video portion of it, uh, Rikai, and myself. And we do uh, we do a show about life. So we talk about just things in general, what's going on in the world, and and personal challenges that we have that we've shared. And one of the things that I'm debating, and if I actually want to relive it in the form of a show or not, I'm debating if I want to talk about what happened um, this last week uh, regarding vehicle troubles. And I might just want to leave it, uh, let that dog lie. But if I was going to talk about it, that would be the show that we would do that, and that is user air. Um, we record it when we're comfortable recording it, and then it's released every Friday. And the third show is Linux Action News. And basically what that is is that we've taken the the news portion of the Linux Action Show and and and, and set, taken that out. And Chris and Joe from uh, Linux Luddites host that show, um, and that is recorded offline every Sunday, and it should be in your podcast catcher around Monday. So that's great. The other thing I wanted to ask, another piece of housekeeping uh, thing and then and then we'll uh, then we'll wrap it up for the hour. But I have been tinkering with the idea of a T-shirt, and it actually stemmed out of a discussion I was having with a good friend of mine. We were t- we we're having a, a good natured discussion, and it got a little intense. And basically, the the discussion was he didn't feel like he could do some of the things he wanted to do on the Linux desktop, and I, I it just convinced me more that I could do all of these things. And I'm like, I'm doing them. I'm doing them. And I, I was, and it got me frustrated. And when I get frustrated, I try to turn that frustration into something productive. And so that particular night, for whatever reason, my way of trying to be, turn my frustration into productivity was to make a t-shirt. And so I designed a t-shirt and um, we'll have a, uh, we'll have a link to the image in the, in the show notes. But basically the, the t-shirt says something, something to the effect of, I came here to do everything they said I couldn't do with desktop Linux. So if you would be proud to wear a shirt that says you can do stuff with desktop Linux, and then, of course, we have to put some unashamable branding at the bottom that says Ask Noah Show. If that's something you'd be interested in, let us know. Use the contact form. Again, asknoahshow.com or email us, asknoah at jupiterbroadcasting.com. And I'd be interested. The way that Teespring works is you have to place a certain amount of orders before they'll actually ship any of them. And what I tried to do was I was going to order all of the shirts myself, and then I was just going to give them away, and I was going to do that for self. It turns out, like, the minimum order is, like, 500 shirts. Or maybe it's $500, 50 shirts at $10 a piece. I don't know. But it's, it's like, way more shirts than, than I need, and I way more shirts than I really want to spend money on myself. So, uh if I could find a couple of people to go in on it with, or if there's somebody out there that's interested, then I think that'd be kind of cool. And I wouldn't mind having a shirt like that. And like I said, our table was great. I think we had one of the best broadcasting booths that we've ever had for a remote setup. But the one thing that it sorely, sorely lacked was swag. People kept coming up and I had stickers, but um, nothing else. And, you know, there's people giving away Frisbees and whistles and all sorts of cool things for kids and people to play with. So it was, it was, uh, it was a little, uh, little underwhelming, but that was okay. And we did, we got a chance to do our new broadcast system. We were able to do that live from the show floor. So make sure to check that episode out. And uh, again, another huge thanks to Cincinnati Public Radio. We really appreciate you giving us a home and, and a studio space to come in here. It's very nice to have 
a, a staff that just comes in and sets everything up for you and you can just sit down and do a show when it all works right. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. A huge thank you to Rakai, our video editor, Sarah, our screener, and Ben, our producer. We'll hand you off to Crosspoint, coming up next on Logos Radio, KEQQ, 88.3 LPFM, Grand Forks. <laughs>